Our scripture reading for today is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. work in our hearts now and conform our minds, conform our thoughts, conform our affections to a new reality, to a kingdom reality, as the Lord Jesus conveys it to us in this sermon. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most annoying aspects of family life in the Pew Home, historically, has been the existence of Opposite Day. Opposite day. Opposite day is when everything you say actually means the opposite. Do you have this in your family culture? No means yes. Yes means no. Don't do that means do it. Do it now. You, you get the picture. Uh, I'm not sure who first introduced the idea of opposite day. Uh, and I'm really glad now that it comes less and less as the kids have grown older because it was annoying. Opposite day usually begins when someone wants to do the opposite of what they've been told. And they declare it's opposite day. They've been told, hurry up, eat your breakfast. But on opposite day, that becomes take your time. Eat your breakfast as slow as humanly possible. And if you say to them, no, it's not opposite day, according to the rules, you're actually saying, yes, it is opposite day. So you have to play by the rules of opposite day in order to contradict it. And once you start playing by the rules, they've got you, right? And they know it. Now, suppose for a moment that the world around us exists in an opposite day of sorts. What if we value, what if the values of everyone held around us, uh, held by almost everyone, what if values held by almost everyone are the opposite 
of what they should be? What if most of our default settings in life are just plain wrong? We naturally disregard what we should value, and we value what we should disregard. What if we were all born upside down, as it were, and we live among a people who were born upside down? whose perspective on life is the opposite of what it should be. Realize this, if everyone you know was born upside down, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't realize it, would you? You wouldn't realize it until someone right side up came along, looking rather odd, and turned you over, standing on your feet for the first time. Right away, you'd be struck by how fulfilling it feels to stand on your feet instead of on your hands. Something had been righted that you always sensed had somehow been wrong. This just feels so right now to stand on my feet. It feels so satisfying, you say to yourself. Why didn't I ever think to see the world this way before? Standing on your feet... You look again at that strange person who turns you over, and he no longer looks so strange. He's right side up. You're now right side up. And everyone else, you look around you now, they're standing on their heads, seeing the world upside down. They're the strange ones. The man who once appeared to be odd now looks like the only sane one. The only one who sees the world as it really is. Folks, this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is turning people who've been born on their heads right side up for the very first time. And it's a painful experience for some of them. We see this taking place all throughout Jesus' sermon turning people right side up, but we see it especially here in this beginning portion that we call the Beatitudes. Here Jesus begins what theologians have called the great reversal. The great reversal. Jesus is reversing the values of his day, which are also the values of our day, by turning them all on their head. He is turning our assumptions about life upside down, revealing that we've had an upside down view of life and the world all along. In a world where everyone has been born upside down, Jesus comes to us as the first man born right side up, seeing the world as God sees it. And he has come on a mission. He's come on a mission to set people free by turning them over by turning them over and restoring them back to God and the way God sees the world. Jesus completes this redemptive work at the cross and at the empty tomb, but he begins it, he begins this work in his teaching ministry here in the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus, God comes to us and tells us how the world really is. Imagine the scene with me. 
verses 1 and 2. Here's, here's the scene. It's a mountainside scene. Maybe some of you have been to where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. It's a, it's a mountainside scene, a, a natural amphitheater in front of you. The disciples have come around Jesus. The, the crowds have gathered. Poor, oppressed people have surrounded him. Jesus sits down and begins to teach. The people stand up and listen to him. A bit of a reverse of what's happening right now, but that's all right. As the people gather around, Jesus speaks words which turn the world on its head for these people. For many, it must have been an unexpected moment of pure joy and sweet relief. Like finding your feet for the very first time after a lifetime of striving to stand on your hands. Nearly 2,000 years later, it can be that way for you too. Today, right now, hearing these words, you too can know what it's like to be turned right side up. To see life as God sees it. Whether you're hearing these words for the very first time, or the Sermon on the Mount is very familiar territory for you, either way, I'll guarantee you today that there are aspects of your life that are still upside down, that are the opposite of what they should be. Jesus means for you to hear and be changed today as you encounter God's right-side-up perspective on the world. In the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount here of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks eight statements of value and promise. We're going to tackle the first four of those this Sunday, and next Sunday we'll look at the last four. So you'll need to come back. Part two, some people need to come back from Mobile and Huntsville. That's okay, you'll need to come back. Uh, to get to the second part. Uh, hopefully as you came in or maybe you heard the announcement at the beginning and went back out, there's a handout there for sermon notes with an illustration at the top. Uh, a generous amount of space for sermon notes under that. Hopefully there's enough room there for this week and next week uh, because we're going to be looking at these 12 verses uh, in both Sundays. So today, the first four of the Beatitudes. Uh, with each of these statements, let's consider first what our default value or assumption is and then we'll see how Jesus turns that assumption on its head look with me at verse 3 verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven what's the assumption of nearly every culture at every point in history is it better to be rich or to be poor? What do people think? What do people aspire to be? To be rich in spirit or poor in spirit? We naturally assume, don't we? We naturally assume it's better to be rich. Of course, riches are better than poverty, we think. The blessed one is the one who is rich in spirit. Or, in America, 
If we can't be rich in spirit, at least we can be middle class in spirit. I've worked hard to build a sense of my self-worth. Perhaps a few things in my life could use some improvements, yeah. But on the whole, I feel no real need. I've done it. I've arrived. I feel no need in my spirit. I'm respectable. I'm self-sufficient. I, and what I don't have, I can do without. If I can't get it at Walmart, I don't need it. This is the way, this way of seeing the world naturally appeals to those born upside down. Think about it. If you're standing on your head, standing on your hands, only an arm's length away from the earth above you, you can look up at the ground and feel very self-sufficient. I've got this, you think. Everything I want is, if, is within reach. But Jesus warns us that this is a dangerous place to be. It's not those who feel their sufficiency, but those who feel their spiritual bankruptcy who are blessed. Blessed are those who know their spiritual poverty, Jesus says. The man standing on his head looks up and his sky is just a small bit of dirt within arm's reach. And so he feels himself sufficient. But the sky within his reach is not the true sky, is it? It's just dirt. Turn the man over. Turn him right side up. Now let him look up. And he sees the immensity of the real sky and feels his smallness, feels his poverty, feels his insufficiency before the greatness of God. This is where true spiritual life begins, folks, according to Jesus. This is where it begins. When we recognize our spiritual poverty before an infinitely holy God. We come to him poor, not having one spiritual dollar to put in his hand. Not one cent. This is our true condition before God, Jesus says. And blessed are those who discover it. When we lived in Paris, we'd often, often be confronted by poverty. There were beggars on the street. Hard to walk through Paris without passing them. And over time, I began to realize, as I look at a beggar on the street, I am actually looking in a mirror. That's me before God. This is me. I am bankrupt. I am poor. I am a beggar. And I am in that position all by my own doing. It's all my fault. But God had mercy. God had compassion on me. Every beggar you ever see is a reflection of yourself, of your spiritual condition before God. And blessed are you to know it. It'll change your heart toward that person. As long as you think you're rich, that you're capable of making it on your own, you'll be a stranger to the riches of God's grace. You won't find it. You won't know it. 
But when we approach God acknowledging our spiritual poverty, which he has always seen, he sees straight through us, he sees the rags, then we can finally embrace the good news of the gospel. Jesus, although he was rich, became poor for us so that we through his poverty might become rich. In one amazing promise, verse 3, Jesus turns the way we see poverty and wealth on its head forever. And radiating out from this first dramatic reversal comes another. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, well, verse 3 again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What do we naturally think? Blessed are those who mourn? No, it's not what you think. But blessed are those who have no cause for mourning, right? Blessed are those who are carefree. Blessed are those upon whom not one drop of rain falls on their parade. That's the way we naturally think, right? But here, Jesus turns us on our head again, turns everything on its head. The very act of being turned right side up will create its own kind of mourning in our hearts. You can't look up at the gloriously big sky now and not feel the distance your sin has created between you and your creator. How you have wronged and offended him by your upside down life all these years. There will be mourning both for sin and for the broken world we see around us. But there's also a promise here. Comfort is coming. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus promises to wipe every tear from every eye one day. Because weeping is one of the things, one of the first things that must pass away when he returns to restore all things back to God, back to the way they should be. Jesus has come to turn the world on its head and he promises to remake the world where mourning over sin will be replaced by pure, unending laughter. This is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You know, Luke, in Luke, Jesus speaks, tells a very similar, gives a very similar sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And he says something very similar there. Do you know it? Blessed are those who mourn now, for one day they will, what? Laugh. Laugh. And it will be a laugh that will never end. Here's a third thing Jesus turns on its head. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the people that we naturally assume will inherit the earth? Isn't it the strong? Isn't it the bold, the confident? 
unlike some places I've lived in the world, looking at you, England, America has a culture that values extroverts, the, the confident extrovert we, we prize, we value. Those who take the bulls by the horns, who make their own fortunes, uh, if you can move through life with confidence, yeah, yeah, being out there, uh, imposing your will, overcoming the odds, you'll go far in America. Even if you came from nothing, you can inherit the earth. But ultimately, Jesus warns, that's not true. The people who inherit the earth will not be those who exert their wills over others. But those who humble themselves under rightful authority, under Christ's authority. They are the meek in that they come under the will and reign of Jesus. And being united to Jesus also unites us to his inheritance. Because I inherit the earth, Jesus says, you, the meek, the humble, the gentle, you will inherit the earth with me. So, it's not the strong. It's not the Alexander the Great. It's not the Caesars. It's not the bold. It's not the confident who inherit the earth but the meek, the humble, the gentle, who become so by joining themselves to Jesus, who really inherit all things. We have no choice but to become meek if we are to respond to Jesus' invitation. He says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart. You want to follow Jesus, the gentle and humble one? It will gentle and humble you. And you will find rest, real rest for your souls. Jesus also says, unless you come to me humbly like a child, you're not going to come at all. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you come gently, humbly. Believing the gospel itself humbles us and binds us to Jesus, the humble and gentle king who condescends to serve us. And he binds us to himself. And when we're bound to him, we're also bound to his inheritance. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. You know what you have in common with Kate Middleton, you know who Kate Middleton is, right? Married the future king. You know what you have in common with her? You were a nobody, and you married a somebody. You married royalty, Christian. You're wedded to the king. His titles are now your titles. You share in them. His inheritance is now your inheritance. Kate Middleton could have rocked up to Buckingham Palace at any point growing up, and there would have been no way she would have got an audience with the queen. No way. But now, the door is open. The arms extend. Guards bow. Why? Because she is united to the fate 
of the, of the future king of England. She has a new identity. Christian, you have a new identity. You are united to the king. Not by might, but by meekness. Now, everything the king inherits, you will inherit as well. Blessed is the meek by bride of Christ, for she will inherit a world without end. That is you. Here's a fourth way we see the world turned upside down. Last one we're going to look at today, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We naturally think it's not the hungry who are blessed, but those who are satisfied, right? Blessed, blessed are those who are satisfied with righteousness. That's the way it should read. But what would that look like? What would it look like to be satisfied? Is it a hunger for righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness? What would it look like to be satisfied with righteousness? Well, if you didn't know, the Greek word here for righteousness is the same word for justice. Jesus could be saying here, those who hunger and thirst for justice. In that case, to be satisfied would look like being happy with the status quo of justice in the land even though injustice exists. That's one way of seeing it. But there's another way. Jesus uses the word righteousness here in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 20 of chapter 5. And, and by the way, I think verse 20 is the most important verse to understand this whole sermon. Verse 20 says this, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear what Jesus just said? Unless you are better than the most religious people in history. Unless you are better than the most religious people you know, you will not enter God's heaven. You won't make it. It's not, it's not enough. Here, Jesus refers to righteousness as that which you need in order to have a right standing with God. So the question comes, are you right enough? Are you righteous enough? Are you right enough with God in order to live with him forever? That is the question. For the crowds in Jesus' day and for us today. In Jesus' day, who were those satisfied with their level of righteousness before God? It was the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. It was the religious elite who thought, if anybody's made it, it's us. We are good enough for God. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount intends to shock everyone, to shock you, to shock me, to shock those who are listening to him by turning the way we see the world on its head. The blessed one is not the one who's satisfied with his own righteousness, with his own religious attainments. The blessed one is the man who hungers and thirsts for a righteousness 
not his own. Not her own. If you're still clinging to your own goodness in order to get in good with God, this chapter is designed to destroy that delusion that you have. After verse 20, it just gets tougher for the self-righteous. Jesus talks about murder. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say, whoever's angry in their heart is guilty. You call your brother a fool, you're guilty enough to go into fiery hell. We weren't allowed to say the word stupid in my house growing up. (laughs) Uh, You call your brother, the anger that comes out of your heart in that moment, that's the problem. Anger will send you to hell. Adultery, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, you look with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. God doesn't just see the outward action, he sees the heart that gives birth to the outward action. Jesus says, it's not enough just to love your friends, to love those who love you. You got to love your enemies. Why? That's what Jesus did. That's what God did for you. He loved you while you were his enemies. You want to know, verse, verse 48, what's the true standard? You must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. This whole sermon is designed to destroy the delusion that you can do it. That you can have a righteousness that's good enough. In the small world of living upside down, standing on our hands, we can convince ourselves that our little work will be enough. But when Jesus turns us right side up, we are made painfully aware that we need a righteousness much greater than we could ever achieve. To close that gap between us and God. If we, with our good works, could build an Eiffel Tower of righteousness, it wouldn't be enough to reach into heaven, would it? Not enough. Ultimately, that effort would just be building another tower of Babel, a monument to ourselves. But the promise of verse 6 is this. You will get the righteousness you need. Those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness not their own will get it. You will be satisfied. Perfect justice will come for the, to those who hunger for it. A perfect righteousness will be given to those who thirst for it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, God the Father, made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been talking about the great reversal. Jesus turning everything on its head. That verse talks about the great exchange. Our sin, our living upside down, those lives, Jesus takes the punishment upon himself for all of our rebellion. And in exchange, he gives us a gift. My perfect standing with God, my perfect performance, my righteousness paid by faith. It is yours. I freely give it at great cost to myself. The cost of my life upon a cross. I give you right 
a right standing, justice, righteousness before God. You in yourself will never be able to earn the righteousness you need, but Jesus offers you, offers you his righteousness as a gift, completely free. It's a free gift to all who completely trust in him. And it's a free gift to you today. If you're willing to stand right side up and have your world turned upside down. As we close, I want you to picture the biggest city you've ever been to. New York City, London, Paris. It could be Birmingham. Biggest city you've ever been to. A city full of people, tall buildings, large monuments, impressive structures. Now, imagine that city turned upside down. The structures that seem so permanent and secure now seem to be barely hanging in place. So precarious. The, the bigger they are, the more fragile their position now appears, turned upside down. The whole scene, which before testified of security and self-sufficiency, now communicates nothing but utter dependence. And I'll ask you, which is the truer way to see the world? The self-sufficiency that many feel or the utter dependency of those turned upside down? Which is really the right way up view of things? Jesus, the only man ever born right way up, knows the truth. And he has come to set us straight. Being right side up begins by recognizing our utter dependency and our spiritual poverty before God. Only then can we receive his riches and these incredible promises we looked at this morning. If you want these promises to be yours, it will mean turning the way you see life upside down. It will mean not participating in the world's version of opposite day. But that's no real loss. Opposite days really are the worst. Let's pray together. Father, as we have encountered your word, I pray that there would be a shift in our hearts. A shift in the way we see your world, the way we see others around us, and the values that people hold in common. Lord, may our lives be turned on their heads. May we not aspire to riches or strength, but to know our bankruptcy before you, to know our spiritual poverty, to be humbled before you. It is those that inherit all things. Lord, may you change the way we see the world today. And as we're often, often tempted to revert May these words come again and again with a hammer-like force upon our hearts, calling us to see the world as you see it. Lord, change us from the inside out today, we ask. And if someone's here for the very first time 
having their world turned on its head by the words of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would draw that person to a righteousness that they could not earn of themselves. May they believe and cast themselves completely upon the Lord Jesus and have the righteousness their heart has always hungered for in him. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.